um, the book of Hosea. Uh, been in a two-week journey that's ending today, the gospel according to them, where we've been journeying through this book of Hosea where we said Hosea contains just this tremendous story, um, the story of Hosea, the story of Gomer, their relationship, what's happening there, and the story that is contained in Hosea, it actually points us to an even greater story, the good news regarding the claims, the person and work of Jesus Christ, shorthand, the gospel. And what we said is we just wanna, we just wanna linger in this, in this book for two weeks and, and live here, like sit at their feet, learn from them, and, and see what God could do. And we organized this book, or at least we said this book could be organized in really two parts. Part one um, being, um, part one being the illustration, chapters one through three. Sterling, I forgot you, I didn't mean to. In terms of service and render. Part one being one to three, chapters one through three. It serves as an illustration. God is trying to communicate some things and the primary way he's gonna communicate is by using a remarkable, sometimes confusing illustration between a marriage of Hosea and Gomer and how it reflects the relationship between God and his people. That's part one, it's the illustration. Part two, chapters four through 14, we said that that's really the commentary. That is God starting to unpack some of the implications behind what he's illustrating. It's God starting to apply what he's illustrating. And so that is the book of Hosea, illustration and commentary. And last week, we lived in the illustration. We worked through it and we, we left with this single, dominating, piercing idea that we are a mess and yet deeply loved. That that is, that is the core of this illustration and it becomes what booms from the story of God and the gospel that we are a mess. No caveats, no cleaning it up, it's just there. We are a mess, yet the story doesn't end there. Yes, we are a mess, but yet we are deeply loved as well, it's the single dominating idea in the illustration. It is the single dominating idea that pierces through the gospel. But now we're looking at the commentary. And I do need to say this, um, as we work through the commentary portion, there's, there's two ideas that just grab us. We're gonna dive more into the anatomy of love, and then we're gonna dive more into the pursuit of restoration, two powerful ideas. I need to say a couple things first. The first I need to say is this. You are more than welcome to pray for me as we work through the text so that I don't weep my way through this message. In Jesus' name, I mean that with all sincerity. This morning, I'm in front of my computer screen, and I'm like, why is my eye sweating? Stop. But it's the text. So I just need to say that. The second thing I need to say in view of that, too, is, man, listen, like, I like smiles, they do stuff from my heart. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, even this morning, I'm praying through the text, I'm working through the manuscript, and just like, man, Lord, this is the words that I feel like you gave me in, in view of this text. And I'm like, Where, where's the levity, you know? 
Like, where's the, where's the funny commentary, like, that I could insert, you know? Um, and I, I don't want to force wit. I feel like if you force wit, it's fake or things like that, you know? And, you know, but, but I'm looking, I'm like, man, I just don't see it. Like, I'm like, maybe I could put it here, like, some illustration, and sometimes the illustrations are too contextual, so they fly over everybody's head, you know, and some people are just laughing because everybody else is laughing, like, I don't want to miss out, you know, and so I'm like, man, is there a place for it in the text? And I'm like, so forgive me if it feels like more hammer than hardy. I don't really know what to do with it. I tried. I promise. But there is a, there is a weight and a power here that God help us receive. And the thing that, that I feel needs to be said on the front end before we move to the text is the thing that just keeps piercing me, which is the tendency of me, it's a tendency of all of us, humans in general. Unfortunately, Christians lean into this. But we tend to love theories more than tangible expressions of the ideas that we hold. We like ideas of things more than actually putting them in practice. We like principles more than the practice of those principles. Example, everybody likes the idea of being healthy, but will never step foot in a gym. You wouldn't read the back of a label to save your life, but you love the idea of being healthy. We like the idea of being financially free, yet you disregard your budget consistently. Yet you dishonor God by not putting him first within your scheduling of your resources and giving. Even to the church. You don't give to the church. You don't just, not only do you not give as the church, you don't give to the church. They may mismanage it. Plus, they're really spiritual, so God will take care of it. But we like the idea of financial freedom, things like that. We like the idea of marriage. Until you say, I do and realize the person that you married is actually a sinner as well. And so it's not one of those things where it's like, yeah, I kind of know that. I know that I said in plenty and in want and sickness and in sorrow, like I, like I know all of that. And then you realize, well, wait a second. Like, you're not my sex slave. Like, you're not given to me so that I won't be lonely in life. Like, you are a, a human being that I have been gifted with to serve and care for, a human being that will show me things about myself that I may not want to see, but I absolutely need to, and that I need to have the spiritual courage, both the humility and the fortitude to change. We like the idea of marriage. We love it more than actually being married and family. What we're talking about today are two of the ideas that we love more than actually putting them in practice. We love the idea of love more than actually loving people. And we love the idea of restoration. It's novel. It's in every single film. That at the end of the day, things are made right. We love that idea rather than actually doing the hard work of pursuing it. And God help us from being those people who live, like we love concepts more than actually pursuing them concretely. The word for that is hypocrisy. God help us, because that's all of us. 
God help Christians who are the carriers of the most transformative ideas in human history that will empty them of power and beauty by loving the idea more than putting it in practice. Help us. And the hope is today is help. Because in reality, there's a lot that I'm going to say that I'm like, you're going to be like, yeah, duh, I've kind of heard this before, but you're not doing it. Now what? And so as we, as we work through the anatomy of love, which is what the text gives us, and we work through the pursuit of restoration, which is what the text gives us, would we be courageous enough to say, I need help. It's the flow of our time. The anatomy of love, and we'll look at some comments. I'll make some comments and make some applications as we work our way through. Um, and then we'll get to the pursuit of restoration um, make some comments and applications as we work our way through before we close. Prayerfully, it doesn't feel like two sermons because I'm already hot up here. Should have thought about this jacket, but I'm wearing white. And you know, if you have sweaty pits with white, it's awkward. Amen. There goes the levity. May not happen again. Read with me. Um, just being honest, chapter 11, um, we'll read it straight through. Um, Cliff, you did a great job of reading it. Thank you, brother. But let me read it again so that we can have it fresh in our mind. Uh, Hosea chapter 11 reads like this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It was I who taught Ephraim how to walk, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that, that I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love, to them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Israel will not return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria will be his king because they refused to repent. Underline that. We're not going to fully get into it here. We're going to bring it out in chapter 14, but you can underline that. The absence of repentance actually carries consequence. Verse 6, a sword will whirl through his cities. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. They are sabotaging their own lives. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them. Keep your synthetic sham Christianity. It's not going to produce what you desire. Verse 8, how can I give you up? This is, God. this is God. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I've had a change of heart. 
My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back and destroy Ephraim. For I am God, not man, the Holy One among you. You could underline that too, because we are going to talk about that. I will not come in rage. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will be roused like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. Ephraim surrounds me with lies. The house of Israel with deceit. Judah still wanders with God and is faithful to the holy ones. I read um, Hosea chapter 11, and I immediately sit 1 Corinthians 13 on this. I sit Romans 5 on this. I sit 2 Corinthians 5 on this. I sit 1 John 5 on this. I sit 2 Peter chapter 3 on this. It is clear to me at least, and I'm saying me, opinion, that it seems like, like we're getting a look be, behind the veil of the depths and dynamics, the anatomy of love rooted in the heart of God, so much so that the writers of the New Testament, when they pull from the cross of Christ and the language that they are using to describe love, man, it sounds a lot like what's going on here in Hosea chapter 11. When we start to pull out the, the particulars you're probably going to be like, man, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm listening to like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that, that passage regarding love. And yeah, it's because of what I had you underlined, but I'm getting ahead of myself. When, when, we, when we think about the anatomy of love, love, at the end of the day, and this isn't, again, this may not be new information, but it needs to be said, love involves decisive actions and sincere affections, this is love. Love involves decisive actions and sincere affections, and so when we say, yeah, we're a mess, yet deeply loved, and we talked about that was unique to God in terms about being seen truly, fully known, and loved well, that love well involves decisive actions and sincere affections. Let's look at a few. now. They're here, but in other parts of Hosea, they pop, so I may reference them, but, but the first particular, starting with decisive actions that describe and ultimately define love, the first, love takes initiative. This is chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's powerful. I chose to love him. I chose to pursue him in his slavery, in his bondage. I chose the posture of a father because that's actually who I am. It's not an illustration primarily to describe me. It's my identity, father, and I stepped in to love them. Initiative. If you're a parent, you know that to be true because before you had children, you had their room filled with diapers, 
different colors, if it was a girl, you know, not because, you know, there's like something powerful about pink and it's more cultural, but amen. But if it was a guy, it's like blue for us, because I'm African, we had like animals everywhere so they could know their heritage. But you started doing stuff before they had the awareness of what you cared for them with. Love, initiative. It's proactivity. This is not just seen here. I think it really pops in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. I said it last week, but it's worth saying again. The Lord said to me, go again. Show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Go again. Don't wait for her to get ready. Don't wait for her to clean up. Don't wait for her to earn it. Don't wait for her to prove it. Don't look to her for fuel. Go again. Love takes initiative. Now, here's the thing about that. Let me just apply this and move on because I actually don't want to spend too much time here. You can program being proactive. It's easy. Set a schedule. But the initiative here, and and we're going to get to it more with the affections, is, is it's not mindless activity. Like there are people who are good at being proactive but there's a disconnect in their hearts because they're just doing stuff. This is initiative that is rooted in deep affections, reflected in desiring something good for the other person, even if it inconveniences you, which is the best definition of biblical initiative, to proactively pursue someone else's good at your own expense. Go again. There's more stuff here, though. There's more aspects of the anatomy of love. Not only does love take initiative, love provokes sacrifice. So this is Hosea chapter, really, it's all of 11, but again, I feel like it pops in Hosea chapter 3, where it says this, so so I brought her for, for, for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley, and we talked about that that this was the, 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 the price of a slave, like 30 shekels, and he didn't have enough, but he still made up the difference with barley. And so there's an element of sacrifice there, provoked by love. Love provokes sacrifice. And I don't think that that's foreign to us, but there's something that I feel like we need to just have our hearts gripped by, like, I mean, just to wrap our minds around this. Sacrifice is so core to the anatomy of love that if we, if, if, if we don't acknowledge it and pursue it, we not only will miss out on the beauty of love, we will produce a grotesque alternative. It is core to love. There is a principle in the interpretation of scriptures, hopefully I'm not coming off too heavy-handed. There's a principle, what is it? My ADHD is acting up, guys. There's a principle that helps us interpret the scriptures. It's an interpretive tool. It's called first mention. The principle of first mention. 
The principle of first mention, what it means is the first time a significant idea is mentioned in the Bible, it becomes the, the starting point for interpreting or understanding that idea when it shows up later. That's the principle of first mention. When something shows up the first time, it becomes the starting point, the grid of how you interpret it later. We see this in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, Acts chapter two, the spirit of the living God falls on his people. They start speaking in tongues. And as they're speaking in tongues, what's fascinating is, Galasalea, what, what is fascinating is they start to proclaim the excellencies of God in languages that other people know. And it becomes a sign that the Spirit of God is with his people and he's moving them towards something, namely evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel. And so for every single time that Tongues shows up and the spirit falls on people in Acts. What is mentioned is, oh, wait a second, it's just like what happened in Acts 2. And it becomes the primary grid that they're using to interpret this experience, particularly when there's an issue between the Jews and the Gentiles. And can these pork-eating heathens actually receive the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ? And, and they're like, well, wait, listen, the spirit fell on them the same way it fell on us. First mention, does that make sense? Do you know that the first time love shows up in the English Bible? Do you know where that is? You know where it is? You know where it shows up in the Hebrew Bible? You know where it is? Now, I'm not talking about the concepts of love. I'm not talking about the experiences of love, but I'm talking about the definitive statement of it shows up in Genesis 22. Not Genesis 1. Although we know that God created a universe in love. Not Genesis 3, where sin entered in, people rebelled against God because we're a mess. And instead of slaughtering them, God kills an animal and clothes them, a precursor of the gospel. We call it the proto-evangelion. It's going to show up in Genesis 3.15 as well. Love doesn't show up there, although we know it's all in the midst. The first time is Genesis 22. And I am spending time here because it's core. Genesis 22. Maybe you're familiar with this scene. It says this. God says to Abraham, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. The first time is rooted in this significant demonstration of, of sacrifice. And then every single time in the scriptures, you see a correlation of love and sacrifice. This is Genesis 29. So we're talking seven chapters after that, about 40 years or so, maybe 50, if I'm not mistaken. Don't check my math again. 29, 25. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. He sacrificed seven years of his life to pursue her, and it was like a blink of the eye because of love. Even when God is indicting his people in Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, 6 through 7, there's, there's, there's this conversation God is entering into his people. And this is what he says. He says, as a son honors his father and a servant his master, but I am his father, where is my honor? He's talking about where's my love? 
Where's your, where are your decisive actions that reveal my value? Where's my love? He says, and if I am the master, where's your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to, your, to, to you priests who despise my name. And yet you ask, how have we despised your name? And this is what God responds. By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's is contemptible, the Lord's table is not that important. And so in other words, he says, I'm indicting you because of your lack of love, and I'm, the evidence I'm going to use is your sacrifice. If God was to do that to us, do you love me? What he would put on the table is our sacrifice. First John 4, love consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is sacrifice. Love provokes sacrifice. This aspect of love always leads me to a a question and a confrontation. The question that I'm consistently confronted with, I was confronted with it this morning, is how far am I willing to be stretched for the sake of love? It confronts me with a conclusion, and maybe this is me, but it's actually two conclusions. The first is the thing I'm most prone not to sacrifice exposes me every time. When I know for me and us that we're most prone not to sacrifice often is preference and the right to be right. Yet consistently, this is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 14. This is his argument in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 8, pulling from the gospel and the work of Jesus on the cross. And his argument is love limits liberty. Love says I can't or I can, but I won't for you. I will sacrifice. Very frustrating, humbling confrontation. The other conclusion it confronts me with personally, but I think it's not just me. I think it may be us. Momentary sacrifice is actually pretty easy. Like to just kind of muster up the strength to do something that I don't really want to do. It's like, man, eat your broccoli or you can't play this Nintendo 64. I was a beast in GoldenEye beast. Broccoli before goldeneye. Of course. Shove that in my mouth. It was a sacrifice. For the moment. Feel me? And I'm, husbands, man, I really want to have sex with my wife tonight. I'm going to go do these dishes. And y'all are laughing because that's you, and it's also sin. It's actually manipulative in case there's confusion. Like, it's manipulative. Like, it's not actual sacrifice. It's manipulation. It's prostituting your spouse. 
And I'm not saying that mirror me. What God calls us to is something more than momentary sacrifice. It's ongoing. This is why the words of Jesus are so crazy and people actually got them and they said thanks but no thanks. Where Jesus stares at people whom he loves and then he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. That means every day you wake up to die. But it's a glorious death because it's love. Perpetual, ongoing sacrifice terrifies me. The thought of sacrificing and nobody receiving it. But sacrifice is rooted in what God has called us to do, not in somebody else's ability to receive it or earn it. Which is why it's not momentary, it's ongoing. Because the fuel isn't them, it's God. Which, which actually moves to this last piece of the decisive actions before getting to the sincere infections. Read with me, verses one through four, it's crazy. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians even as Israel was leaving them. They hadn't got two feet out of Egypt and they already wanted to go back. Yet look at the end. I led them with human cords. Other translation says acts of kindness with ropes of love. Love at the beginning, love in the middle, love at the end. What we see here, what's highlighted here is what's found in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, love is patient, which is a way of translating that. It makes it feel cute and snuggly, like a Snuggie. Do you remember those, when those used to be the, the thing, like you wrap yourself in a Snuggie? I was like, what is this? Like a warm blanket, ah, I like that. A more accurate way of describing what is happening here and translating 1 Corinthians 13, is, is this idea that love is long-suffering. Long-suffering is a more excellent way of understanding patience. Because what it, what it does is it, it, it pulls us towards this, this picture where I am not forcing the pace. It pulls us towards a picture where not only am I not forcing the pace, so I'm not making you work on my timeline, but I'm not abdicating the pursuit either, which means Patience always involves presence. And when you are patient with people who are hard to love, that means long suffering, not just suffering for them, but suffering with them. I will be with you until you get it. Again, this is why I said, I just feel like the writers of the New Testament are just pulling from here. This is 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. But he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 
It doesn't force the pace or abdicate the pursuit. Love endures the pain. That's patience. That's long-suffering. The endurance of pain for the pursuit of someone else's well-being. Not forcing the pace, not abdicating the pursuit, but enduring the pain. I will lead you with ropes of love. My God. Let's, let's pivot to, to its affections, the anatomy as it relates to affections. Let's, let, let's pivot by saying, saying this. Don't strip love of its bite by removing the decisive actions that describe and define it. There's a way we like to talk about love, and it is more fluff, romantic, experiential, and it shows up in human relationships, particularly in marriage, where you say, nah, I just, just don't, I fell out of love with them. I'm just not in love with them anymore. And, and what, what the person that says that is often highlighting is it just feels like there's not this emotional connection that is meaningful anymore. There's not this life-giving, like, internal feeling anymore. That's, love is not something that you fall in or out of. Love is a choice. So it's something I choose to do or I choose not to do, primarily. And if we, we remove that reality of love, we'll get something that is unhelpful and dangerous and a terrible substitute, yeah. Decisive actions. However, however, we should not only not strip love of its bite by removing the decisive actions that it entails, but we should not strip love of its beauty by removing the sincere affections that it embodies. This is verse 8. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. Have you ever been in a relationship where you've just been like, man, you know what? I'm just done. I'm over it and I'm over you. And then you just stare at them. And you're like, man. so you say some words in your head that I can't say out loud. Oh, I love you, man. I just want to choke you. Not your spouse, because that's abuse, but if it's a friendship situation, right? So I just want to just, I don't mean to make light of abuse. If you're in an abusive situation, you need to run now. Come holler at me before I go, or holler at the pastors who are still here. But you know what I'm talking about? Where there's just this like, like something just happens in, like in you that causes you to be moved towards them. It's affection. And it's, 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 it's affection that we have to understand is not infatuation. T-Pain, I'm sprung. Girl, you got me, right? Doing things I, that was a cultural reference. If you don't know who T-Pain is, he ruined R&B. Facts, facts. There goes levity. Hold on to it, because there's more coming in this sermon, I promise. Right? That's infatuation. To be intoxicated, 
Love is not infatuation. Affections are not infatuation. The affections that we see here in verse eight that are an expression of what happens in the very heart of God, they, they reveal incredible commitment. That's affection. It, it reveals inexhaustible desire. There's a sincerity here. But here's the beauty, the beauty here. Like, you can be sincere and wrong. So not only is there a sincerity of deep, committed, inexhaustible affections, there's a nobility here as well. Notice, God is feeling this in his heart, and he says, how can I leave you to yourself? And what he's feeling in his heart is this deep desire for something good for them. In other words, noble affections of love. Right, love involves love, love like love involves decisive actions and sincere affections, but they're not just sincere, they're noble. Noble affections of love entails wanting for and not merely wanting from. This man, I'm stirred. It's not because, man, you know what? Now you're gonna be able to obey me. This, I'm stirred deep from within. It's because I just want something for you, man. I just want something for you. It is saturated with relationship and not utility. I have to say that again, because this is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that God got a tool back. Like God wants to change this world and he's using people to do it. This is why we say every Sunday, the gospel changes people and people change the world. But God did not go to the cross so we could get a tool back as if you're like a hammer. You know what I was missing in my toolbox? Man, I don't have a hammer. Man, I don't have a flathead screwdriver. I need one of those. Ah, you know who you are? You're a flathead screwdriver. Let me rescue you. Let me save you so now I can have... The good news of the gospel is not your usefulness to God. The good news is rescue, that God gets you back. And all that entails, the depth of relationship where you experience him in this way. He doesn't want something from, it's not from, it's wanting for. That's the nobility of affections. And to, to button this up before we get to restoration and closing. For I am, the whole, I am God and not man, the holy one among you. You know, what that, you know what that tells me? You know what that tells us? God is the standard even when we fail to meet it. Because everything in this chapter, if you look and say, yeah, I'm about to go do that now, good luck. So you know what we're going to do? We see a bar that we can't meet, we lower it. And here's where we are. All these counterfeit examples of love. We don't endure like that. We don't take initiative like that. We do just enough 
so you leave me alone. We do just enough so I look good in your eyes. God is the standard. Even when we fail to meet it, which means that he becomes the source that we look to to actually do it and the measuring rod that we have to show if we've done it. And there's a tension in all of us that I experience God's love through human relationships primarily and I'll have a tendency to measure God's love through human relationships primarily. So every missed phone call is God not loving me. Every dish that's not put away is God not loving, and I will measure, and it's like, no, like God is the standard. Let's run to it. Let's let it be the, the measuring rod. And yeah, we're not gonna meet it. We're not gonna meet it. But you know what closes the gaps? Grace. God empowering us. Not merely excusing us, but empowering us. That needs to be said because what we're getting ready to close with is a high standard regarding restoration. When there's a damage in a relationship, when there's brokenness, but there's a desire for wholeness, that's how chapter 11 closes. I will settle you even though you're still surrounding me with lies and deceit. I want something for you. I've been stirred in my heart for good for you. I will settle you. I will restore you. I will do some significant acts to make you whole again. That standard sometimes is so high that restoration feels like a figment of our imagination. That we just look at the relationships in our lives and we're like, I'm just going to settle for them being broken. And then we look at the relationship with God and we're like, yo, I've done too much. I can never be used again. I've done too much. I've severed the intimacy. And restoration, it just feels like a figment of the imagination. It's like a fairy tale. It's a fable. And biblical restoration is not that. It is hope for an anxious heart, yo. That things could be made new. Chapter 14, I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but I'm just going to hit some of the highlights of it in closing, make some comments and free you, free us. There's a process to restoration, right, in its pursuit. There's actually a process. Sequence matters in this case. And when we lean into this process, I think we could actually find meaningful restoration. That's all of chapter 14. It's this picture, but there's a process in here. The, the process, read with me. Verse, verse one through two shows us that the first part of restoration is return. It's return. Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. In other words, there's this fixing of direction. I, I was this way, I'm changing my direction, and now it's fixed in a different one. I'm returning, I'm coming home. Return. 
and involves recognizing both where I was and where I want to be, but it's return. The next part of that is not just return, so it's not just establishing where I want to go. Establishing vision, if you will. That's where. But it's repent. Return and repent. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Then These are the words. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good. And, and so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We, we will not ride on horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion from you. It's repent. But I, I like here. I like here because it's not just ethereal, abstract repentance. It's super specific. He, he is challenging them to repent from specific deeds. In this case, it's their false teaching. It's their functional false saviors, these idols. But, 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 but here's, here's the thing that we need to see about this. This needs to be said, I'm gonna move on. It says, repentance is more than feelings of sorrow. It's ownership of guilt. So, so 2 Corinthians 7 says, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief, that's sincere sorrow, that's sorrow. But again, it's not, it's not, it's not merely sorrow. It's more to that, it's ownership of guilt. Worldly grief often wants the end of personal feelings of pain. I just don't want to hurt anymore. Godly grief wants the end of the pain of the person who was wrong. I don't want you to hurt anymore. And when directed with God, we understand that sin isn't just breaking God's law, it's breaking his heart. God, I don't want your heart hurting. Godly grief. Worldly grief wants to make sure you come out looking the best. How do I look the best in this situation? So what do I need to acknowledge that's going to get you to stop, but still going to have me look in some type of way? Godly grief wants to make sure that the relationship is in the best position to succeed, which means full transparency. Whatever it takes. Worldly grief, it reeks of pride. Godly grief is drenched with humility. Worldly grief says, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry this happened. Godly grief says, I apologize for making you feel this way. I apologize for what I did. That's ownership. That's ownership. It's more than just sorrow, it's ownership that moves us towards meaningful repentance, which includes repair. Do you see what they said there? That we may sing again. There's a repair element that's transpiring there. When I stop repenting, the relationship stops growing, it dies. Move on. It's not just Return, it's not just, this is restoration, it's not just return, it's not just repentance. 
So it's not return, repent. It's actually receive. Verse four, I will heal their apostasy. I will freely love them for my anger will have turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root in the cedars of Lebanon. His branches will spread. And over and over and over again, it's God saying, I'm gonna bless you. You just receive it. And one of the hardest things to do in the restoration process is receive from the person that you've wronged. But if you can't receive from them, you can never be restored to them. Let me say that one more time. If you can't receive from them, you can never be restored to them. Horizontally and vertically, some of us don't have closeness with God because we're still trying to pay for our own sin. And we haven't received what he's offered in terms of a clear conscience. And we haven't received his promises as true that he separates them from east and west as far, never to remember them again. So we bring them up like, God, here I go again, I'm sorry. And he's like, what are you talking about? And if I don't receive for the person I've wronged, restoration can't actually transpire. I'm going long. It's not just receive, it's close with resolve. The process of restoration Return, repent, receive, and resolve. Look at the end. Let whoever is wise understand these things, and let whoever is insightful recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. In other words, resolve to change. Understand, recognize, root. Understand the ways of God and root yourself in them. See what's going to happen as a result. of There's a resolution that is a prerequisite for restoration to actually happen. I'm going to go make it happen. A mentor of mine would always say this. He says, Muchi, we don't wish or feel our way towards change. We decide our way towards it. We resolve. And once you resolve, you do. So there's a return, there's repentance, there's receiving, and then there's resolve. I'll close with this. That hit me, and I almost said at the beginning, but I think it's worth saying now. In the whisper of my heart, I want God to instantly remove a lifetime of habits and instantly fix the challenging areas in my life because it's easier and more appealing than doing the hard work of walking in love and pursuing restoration. Brooke family. You can't microwave this type of transformation. This is crockpot Christianity. You sit in it, you soak in it, you struggle with it, and then one day you're like, how did I get here? Who is this mature man or woman? It wasn't by your effort primarily or exclusively. It's because of the way God chooses to grow us. But there is no growth 
independent of decisive actions and sincere affections, that's love. So plunge yourself into the heart of God. Plunge your heart into God's heart so that you can sit and receive his love. And there isn't growth beyond ongoing pursuit of restoration. When we realize that we've damaged the relationship with God, that we're sinning, and so we go back and we say, man, I'm returning, I'm repenting, I'm receiving forgiveness, and I'm resolving that things will be different. And then when we realize that there's damaged relationships that we've broken among us, we return, yo, man, I messed up. We repent. I apologize. We receive forgiveness and blessing and good, and we resolve Yo, let's go make this better and go change the world. The gospel according to them. Pray with me. Father, your goodness. It knows no bounds. It knows no bounds, God. But God, I need proof. I need proof. I need my heart to be brought into submission. I can't talk myself into transformation. I need the power of the living God to activate, to activate desire and decisive actions and commitment to love from my heart. I need it. Prove yourself as true, God. Would you invade our hearts and subdue us? And would the fruit be something so beautiful that no strategy could take credit for it? Only your spirit at work in and among us. So would we look at relationships with greater hope today? Some of us need to go again, God. Give us courage. Some of us need to, to repent specifically with specificity. Give us courage and prove yourself as true that you are not like us. You are the holy one among us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.